When audience members entered the lobby for the off-Broadway show in and of itself, they were greeted by a wall of 690 paper cards hung neatly on hooks. Each card had the words, I am, printed at the top, and at the bottom were 690 unique identities. Some were occupations. I am a teacher. I am an optometrist. Others were familial. I am a father, a daughter. Some were playful. I am the life of the party. I am a drama queen. And some cut deeper. I am a dreamer. I am an accident. Whatever card the person chose became their ticket into the theater. Everyone went into the performance knowing their role. Today we're talking about family systems. And when I use that phrase, I'm thinking specifically about family systems theory, a branch of psychotherapy that, that puts the family at the center of therapeutic treatment rather than treating an individual in isolation. The theory says that if we wanna understand a person or if we wanna understand ourselves, we have to do it in relation to the system that we're part of. Now, I promise not to tell you everything I've learned ever about family systems, but I do wanna tell you two things. The first is that every family system asks its members to play roles. It assigns each person a role more or less from the moment of their birth. Some of the best known roles are golden child and the scapegoat and the enabler but there are lesser known roles like the switchboard, the one through whom all family communication goes, or the clown, the one who uses humor to distract the family from its issues, or the savior, the child who acts out their parents' unfulfilled dreams and, and lots of others. And the second thing I wanna tell you is that the system gives us those roles in order to seek stability, homeostasis. That's what systems want, to stay at rest. Every family finds its level and then tries to remain there. Regardless of whether it's a healthy place or not, regardless of whether the members of the family are happy or not, the system is not concerned with healthiness or with happiness, but with stability, with staying put and keeping people in those same roles, telling the same story. Witness Joseph, the golden child. Hopefully you picked up on that. Genesis is not being shy about it. Jacob loved Joseph more than he did any of his other sons. In case they're not sure about it, he makes Joseph that famous coat. And in case the significance of the coat is lost on them, Joseph is sure to tell them about the dreams he has where they all bow down to him. For some reason, his brothers hate him. And if you've seen the Broadway musical, you know the rest, how they, because they hate, the, hate him, that it leads them to sell Joseph into slavery and tell their father he was killed by wild animals, how Joseph rises to power in Egypt and how during a famine, his brothers come and seek his help without knowing it's him. And yes, bow down to him and he still takes the opportunity to kind of rub it in their faces because the golden child is gonna golden child. 
and the scapegoats are going to scapegoat. And at the end of the story, the family will be pretty much where it was at the beginning. But the scripture that Bethany read today is not the beginning. The story starts a lot earlier. Joseph isn't just the golden child. He's the golden child of a golden child of a golden child of a golden child. Joseph's dad, Jacob, was his mother's favorite, and she helped him trick his brother Esau out of his father Isaac's blessing. And, and Isaac was the favorite son of Abraham, who sent his other son Ishmael out into the wilderness to die with his mother. And Abraham himself was chosen by God out of all the people in the world to be blessed. Congratulations, that's most of the book of Genesis. Generation after generation, the system keeps telling the same story with the same results. The parents choose their favorite child. The siblings are thrown into conflict. One gets blessed. The others get whatever is left. And the story keeps going. Maybe you know it. Maybe you're playing one of those roles or another in a different story like mine. Last week, my parents were in town, and at some point, my whole family gathered in a circle in our living room, telling stories, making each other laugh, giving each other a hard time, and mostly seeing the humor in it when it was our turn. We were rehearsing some of our greatest hits, favorite stories of when we were kids, the comforting ones where everyone already knows the punchlines, but you still laugh until you're crying anyway. At least that's what we do. And at some point it was my turn. And they started to tell this story about the time my dad was rushed to the emergency room with an appendicitis, which quickly led to an appendectomy. My mom was with him and my middle sister Kate, as the story goes, was cleaning the house and cooking dinner for the rest of us. And mom called from the hospital to check in on us and let us know that they were taking dad back for the procedure. And I got on the line in this incredibly stressful situation, everybody pulling together to keep dad safe and keep things going at home. And I asked my mom, do you mind if I go to my friend's baseball game? There's nothing I can do here anyway. It's a punchline, I know. And it's related to an even more common one in my family. Anytime there's a story and I say, I don't remember it, the reply comes, you were probably at the Shelbournes. In other words, at a friend's house. In other words, not there, not part of it, absent. That's my role in my family's stories, the absent one, the detached one almost the outsider. And it's a description I've always resented. I consider myself incredibly close to my family. I like to think that I'm there when they need me. And I certainly think I'm at least there, like present. Most of them are at my house every Sunday after the service for lunch, like today in an hour. So how could I be the absent one? But this week, as I worked on this sermon, I came across the description of another common role in family systems, the lost child. 
The website I was on said this individual is not really lost. They simply choose to avoid difficult family situations using socially, uh, socially approved methods. They may always be reading a book, it said, at the church volunteering or at the neighbor's house. In other words, the lost child is often at the Shelbournes. This week, reading that description, I let myself do something I haven't done before. I stopped arguing all the ways it wasn't true and allowed myself to ask, is it true? Is that my role? Am I the absent one, the checked out one, the lost child? And the answer I came to was yes. And without bringing you too much deeper into my personal psychology than I've already forced you to go this morning, I realized it's a role I play in a lot of places. Absenting myself from negative situations, showing up in my relationships in a way that makes people wonder if I'm really present. Bringing an energy to many situations that says, there's nothing I can do here anyway. Coming to that realization while writing this definitely put me on kind of a fine edge between this is good self-understanding that will help to ground the sermon for people and I think I've learned too much about myself and need to go lay down for the rest of the week. But allowing myself to ask that question also let me ask another for the first time. If that is my role, how could I step beyond it? How could I be something more? Family systems says that's possible. We never get out of playing a role. We're all, always part of a system. But we don't have to play it reactively. We don't have to play it unconsciously. When we realize what role we're playing, when we can name it, we can also sometimes choose against that role. We can make ourselves available for more. We can define ourselves in bigger, more fulfilling ways. And it starts, says the theory, when we become aware of the story we're playing, when we identify our role. At the end of that one-man show in and of itself, the performer, Derek Delgaudio, reveals his own identity to the audience, his own I am statement. But then he goes on, that's the way he saw me. And then that's how I started to see myself. But I also know that I'm a son and an orphan and a sailor and I'm not just defined by what you see, but by all the things you will never see, we all are. It's a cliche that we are more than the roles we play, greater than the sum of the labels we have been given, or at least that we're meant to be, that we're meant for something greater. It's a truism, but like a lot of truisms, though we hear it often, it can be hard to really believe in our hearts, in my heart. Or if I believe it, it can be hard to put into practice, to break out of that settle, settled, stable place 
to tell a new story when the old one runs so deep, at least back as far as Abraham, the first chosen one. God tells him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Is this the root of all of Joseph's troubles and all his siblings and Jacob's and Esau's and Isaac's and Ishmael's and Sarah's and Hagar's and all that struggle, all that pain, does it start here? With God playing favorites is the beginning of that story that there's not enough love to go around, even for love itself. That's one way to read it. Abraham singled out for special treatment, one line of chosen people and, and everyone else just fighting for the scraps. But there is another way. What if Abraham is not blessed instead of everyone else, but as an example to everyone else, alongside everyone else? What if, just like the story says, all peoples on earth are blessed through this blessing. All peoples are called with this call. And we just read it wrong along the way. What if all peoples are called with the call to, to put a little distance between themselves and the home where they grew up, to travel just far enough away to find some objectivity, to, to notice the script that they've been rehearsing, to figure out the role they've been playing and the suffering it's caused, to see the system and their place in it and to ask themselves for the first time, how could I be something more? Is there something greater that the God who made me wants for me? a blessing, a future, a full and abundant life? What if the promise was not just made for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but for Ishmael and Hagar and Leah and Esau and you and me and everyone we're connected to, to step out of the roles that we've been playing, to break out of the tired stories that we have told for too long and to journey toward the people we were created to be to set down every I am that is too small and to speak the words that God has placed in us, each of us, in all peoples. I am chosen, I am blessed, I am loved.